It's part three, the final part of Where the Road Takes Me this evening, and I'm back at the Donkey Sanctuary in Liscarroll. Well, for any organisation who depend on fundraising to operate, it certainly is a difficult time. With so many charitable organisations, humanitarian causes and local fundraisers, so many are competing for funds in a small country. The Donkey Sanctuary is no exception, and Director of Donkey Sanctuary Ireland, Laura Foster, says that fundraising during the pandemic just adds to the problem. It is incredibly challenging. We are very reliant on our on our parent charity. So um, we're a, an Irish subsidiary charity. We are registered in Ireland. All the money that we raise goes towards Irish donkeys and, and the work that we do. Um, but we don't raise enough in Ireland to cover our operating costs. So if it weren't for our parent charity, we simply wouldn't be able to do what we do. So fundraising is increasingly tight. As you say, there's a lot of competing causes. There's a lot of humanitarian causes um, and animal welfare causes so it's a small country and um, there's only so much funds that you can you can raise within Ireland but we are constantly looking for for ways to be more creative with how we do our fundraising and you know adopting donkeys or sponsoring donkeys is one way of doing it we have our visitor center um, and we do we try to do a lot of awareness raising about about donkey welfare issues so that if people want to support us through regular giving they can do that and uh, and yeah but you're, you're right it is a an increasingly difficult time for all charities really Sheila Fitzgerald has had a long association with the Donkey Sanctuary here in Liscarroll. That association goes back to the days of founder Paddy Barrett. But as a singer, musician, photographer and a journalist, Sheila obviously has plenty to keep her occupied. But you know, John, funny thing is, they all evolved. I, I didn't go actively seeking any one of them. You know, when I was very young, I was always, my father taught me to play from and sing from the age of four. But... Then I was going out with someone in a band and their lead singer sort of gave up, I suppose you could say. And overnight I was thrown up on the stage and uh, my first gig was down in Union Hall in West Cork. And it was a case of sing, sing away and I sang away ever since. Yeah, and, and <laughs> it's a long that time it. ago. Yeah, and I presume in those days that you were out seven nights a week, particularly in the summer. Seven nights a week. Mm. And then I had children, of course. And up in the morning and also the farm, I used to go to the creamery. So like we could roll in maybe four o'clock or five o'clock. We'd be coming from maybe Clare or West Kerry or West Cork. And we'd be up again around eight o'clock the latest to go to school, take the milk to the creamery. But, you know, I never regretted one night ever going out playing. But it was hard, the tiredness. That was the only difficult. Someone is eating my jacket. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. (laughs) But, Uh, yeah. yeah. I like this guy. Yeah, he's he's lovely. He's really... um, Yeah. Outgoing. He is outgoing, yeah, to say the least. Um, the photography then, and like as a package that time, then we started doing video band, church music and photographs for weddings. And then I started sending a few photographs to the Corkman, say maybe 2005, six, and then they started ringing me up to do jobs and that grew legs then like an octopus and grew and grew and grew. So I love it, yeah. What about the music then? Has it changed dramatically since COVID? Uh, actually, we have found that pe- like during COVID, a lot of the band people, musicians were saying, well, people have got into the habit now of staying in and especially the older generation and this will be the case now when restrictions are lifted they won't go out anymore in fact it's the opposite they're just going out in their droves and they're going out day and night 
and they want to and dance. They're enjoying every minute of it and they want to dance and they want to sing and they want to socialise and it's wonderful to see. Right. You recorded the song over Christmas, Little Donkey. We did. And you did the video here as well. We did. Uh, we usually do a video, well, we do a few throughout the year and singles, as you know, and, and on that note, I want to say thank you to yourself for being so good to promote our music throughout the years and also of course uh, everyone at C103 the other presenters but yeah uh, Christmas we did a video of Little Donkey this was the obvious location and I'd know the lads well here the staff and we set it up and we had a great few hours here with them In the immediate aftermath of the Munich air disaster and for a lengthy period afterwards, the German authorities attempted to apportion blame on Captain James Tain, claiming he had neglected to de-ice the wings prior to takeoff. A number of witnesses, however, claimed it wasn't necessary. But there are two other areas to look at. Firstly, there was an amount of slush on the runway, which could have prevented the plane from reaching its correct speed for takeoff. So when the time for V1 or rotate came, the plane did not have the necessary speed to lift from the ground. But the plane was now at a point of no return. However, there is one more area to take into consideration that could have prevented fatalities. At the sports gallery in Egan's Lounge Bar, Philip Egan gives his take on the theories. That could well be true. That could well be true. I don't think it has ever been conclusively decided what was, what was. as you said, they did try to, to, to pin it on Captain Tain. Whether there was the icing done in the wing is questionable. Your theory about the runway certainly would stand up, that they couldn't build up enough speed. And, um, you know, but, um, and, and the other thing, of course, was that in hindsight, there should never have been a hut at the end of the runway. I mean, if the hut wasn't there, they'd have just gone through the perimeter fence and kept going straight, you know, through a field. But the, the hut was there, and in hindsight it shouldn't have been there but then again there was no people didn't expect the plane to overrun the, overrun the runway so when they came to the point where they should have been able to take off they hadn't enough speed and they had gone too far at that stage they had gone too point far. of no return point of no return went through the perimeter fence crashed straight into the hut then and uh, the wings the, 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 the plane disintegrated in the immediate aftermath of it, uh, Jimmy Murphy had to put a makeshift team together to play uh, a game the following week. Now, that game was interesting for the fact that Shea Brennan, I think it was against Sheffield Wednesday, Shea Brennan, who was the first Irishman to play for the Republic of Ireland under the parentage rule, he scored two goals that night for United, I think it was against Sheffield Wednesday, even though he ended up as a defender afterwards. So they also went to the FA Cup final in 58 uh, with a makeshift team. But um, Jimmy Murphy was huge. Now, there's a, a lot of talk at the moment about putting a statue of, of Jimmy Murphy up at Old Trafford because he was a hugely influential figure in the club and could have gone on to manage any team in the world if he'd wanted but he stayed loyal to Busby over all those years so after the aftermath of it then of course they went to this FA Cup final in 63 Busby got back his health and started rebuilding the team, signed a number of players, including the ex-Irish um, assistant coach, Jack Charlton, Morris Setters. Also signed Noel Cantwell, who was an Irishman from Cork, played cricket for Ireland as well. And Cantwell kind of brought a new culture to the dressing room at Old Trafford in the sense that um, training was, was becoming more modern and Cantwell captained the team to win the FA Cup in 63. The familiar names on that plane that night, of course, Matt Busby, Bobby Charlton, Harry Gregg. Those who died were Roger Burton, he was the captain. He was left back. Geoff Bint, 
Eddie Coleman, Mark Jones at centre half, Duncan Edwards. Now Duncan Edwards, Bobby Charlton would later say that Duncan Edwards had played for England when he was, I think, 16, 17 years. There is no doubt that had had Duncan Edwards survived the crash, he would have gone on to captain England to win the World Cup in 66. Even to this day, Bobby Charlton would give an interview and he would say that Duncan Edwards was without doubt the greatest player ever to play for Manchester United. Now that is some compliment when you compare him to, you know, Charlton himself and all the greats, best law, Canton and the whole lot that came later, you know. Also died was, was David Pegg, Tommy Taylor and of course the Irishman, Bill Whelan. There were also a number of journalists that died, including the famous goalkeeper Frank Swift, who was um, a news of the world correspondent at the time. And Manchester United secretary Walter Crickmer died, Tom Curry, Manchester United trainer died, and Manchester United team coach Bert Whaley died. So when you consider it, the whole backbone of the club was wiped out. 20 died on the spot and the remainder died then later in hospital. Yeah, Duncan Edwards then survived the crash uh, and Duncan Edwards was in hospital. Jimmy Murphy visited him and poor Duncan said to Jimmy, what time is kick-off next Saturday, Jimmy? Do you know? And everyone thought that Duncan would survive but uh, against the odds he passed away about a week or a fortnight later. Probably the greatest tragedy and probably the greatest loss ever to, to, to English football, you know? It was huge credit, of course, to Matt Busby to rebuild a great team in the aftermath of the Munich disaster in 1958. He bought George Best, of course, and Dennis Law for £115,000. Nowadays, they would spend that on the reception to unveil the player. And, of course, Busby's rebuilding of the team paid dividends 10 years after Munich in 1968. 68 was huge I remember the night well I remember now John United won the first team British team to win the European Championship uh, Glasgow Celtic had won it in 1967 uh, I actually saw that Glasgow Celtic team playing Cork Burnings above in Flower Lodge I think they beat them 2-0 the same day Bobby Lennox scored two goals that was the great team now of Billy McNeil and all those players United came on then in, a, in, a, in 68 uh, Stephanie was in goals Bill Fawkes and their half you had two Irish fullbacks Tony Dunn and Shea Brennan and of course, you had George Best, Charlton midfield. Probably Busby resigned a couple of years later. The team were ageing. And that's why there was so much United were down for so long before um, Alex Ferguson came in and brought them back up again because the, Frank O'Farrell, who I also spoke to for the sports gallery, Frank passed away last year. He was the man that succeeded Matt Busby as manager of Manchester United and was quite bitter, I thought, in the phone that day I spoke to him from his home in Turkey uh, about you know his, his time at United and the way he was treated and that, you know. I suppose um, the legacy of Manchester United really is that it became, of the legacy of Munich, it became such a huge club. And people often ask the question, why are so many Irish people follow Manchester United in English soccer clubs? And the answer to that, I reckon, is that in the 1800s, there was huge immigration from Ireland, as well as going to America and all over the world. But a lot of them went to um, three cities in England in particular. They went to Liverpool, they went to Manchester and went, and went to London. And uh, there was, the United had a very Catholic ethos. And Matt Busby, of course, was a devout Catholic. That's why they reckon an awful lot of Irish people ended up following Manchester United. There was always so many Irish players played for Manchester United you had Best you had Tony Dunn John Joyce played for Manchester United you could name a, a full United team of players Frank Stapleton of course Don Givens you know all great players That there was a, a huge Irish um, influence on Manchester United always not so much now in recent years mind you but in the, in the 50s, 60s and 70s there was a huge Irish contingent playing for Manchester United always
Finally, if you're seriously considering looking after two donkeys, there are, of course, vet bills, dentistry and farriers to think of. But according to Head of Welfare, Cathy Griffin, farriers for donkeys are hard to come by. There's, uh, there's a little bit of shortage of good farriers in Ireland that are interested in trimming donkeys because donkeys' feet are different to horses, um, so they need slightly different trim. And um, we certainly encourage any farrier who's interested in trimming donkeys to get in touch with us. We'd love to provide a bit of training uh, that's donkey-specific, and we certainly have plenty of work out in, their com- in the community. So the areas that have a lot of, of horse owners would have uh, you know access to farriers. Uh, so places like, like Kildare and, and those type of areas where you've got lots of stud farms, they tend to have you know, plenty of farriers um, the west and the south west um, and up around the northwest it can be tricky to get um, a farrier who wants to trim donkeys they're all individuals and individual characters of course as well oh absolutely I mean no two donkeys are the same they're just they're so different I have eight donkeys myself at home and they all have different personalities even there's even the, the noise of the braid they make is different and and you know they're just wonderful diverse characters and they're so entertaining and one more thing I'm sure you've often told somebody that they are as stubborn as a donkey. A word of advice, never ever use that word in a donkey sanctuary. We don't like the word stubborn for our donkeys uh, yeah. here so because uh, you know people do have that um, perception that donkeys are stubborn but they're not they're they do, really, yeah. You, yeah. you hear people say you're as stubborn as a donkey they do yeah. they do and I know even though they wouldn't use it and you know we're saying it here in a jokey yeah. way but actually what happens is donkeys get when donkeys get frightened or worried they freeze and they like to think things through and if you give them a bit of time and let them think it through they'll do anything for you when you try to force a donkey it will plant its feet because it's frightened and its instinct is right I'm going to stay here now because I'm not happy about that and then people People think they're stubborn, but they're really, really smart. My thanks to Cathy Griffin, Laura Foster, Sheila Fitzgerald and Philip Egan for joining me on this week's programme. Thank you for your company and for coming along with us. Until next week at seven on Where the Road Takes Me, do have a good and a safe week. And from Liz Carroll and myself, John Green, good evening.